You're listening to a podcast from STI. Welcome to this fifth uh, Emergency Medicine Journal podcast of our new podcast series. I'm meeting today here with uh, Mr. John Hayworth, a leading figure of the College of Emergency Medicine, the professional body that represents emergency physicians in the United Kingdom. First of all, thank you for meeting with us today, sir, on this um, rather sunny day. It's uh, a bit unusual. Um, you have just handed over the presidency of the college after three extremely busy years. Would you like to briefly summarize the biggest achievements reached by the College of Emergency Medicine during your leadership? Well, thank you. Yes, it's, um, it's been an eventful uh, three years. Uh, the important point to notice about the, the college and, and the specialty is that it's a team event. And so uh, any achievements um, should best be described as what we have achieved. And what, what we have achieved collectively, I think, is, is a great deal. And I think that they, the headlines would probably include, not in any particular order, the, the acquisition of a building for the college, which is a major step in the growth of the college and the specialty. Uh, the second point would be the appointment of the chief executive, uh, Gordon Miles, who has proved to be superbly successful um, and makes us realise how much we have needed a, a chief executive, particularly one of Gordon's talents, to put together the infrastructure of the college, which, which is an absolutely essential component of the growth. In, in terms of the um, other achievements, I think we've managed to get emergency medicine very much on the map. We've raised the profile of the specialty and the college a great deal. And so around the various important corridors of power and various meetings that we have to go to, emergency medicine, I think now, has a position of understanding and acknowledgement that we are a fundamental part of the, of the healthcare. All of this is building on work done by, by colleagues in the past, and, and we've taken the agenda forward in that sort of way. And also... The fourth thing and final point, I think, in terms of brief headlines, would be an acceptance of the need to shift towards much more senior delivered emergency medicine care by consultant expansion, but also by shifting the overall ED workforce towards much more senior clinicians. The expansion plans for consultants Mm. is quite a challenge. Mm. How do you see this happening in the next few years? Are we thinking about integration of... uh, career-created doctors? Are we thinking about creating a sub-consultant grade? Are we, what are we doing to try to retain the trainees, which is a big problem at the moment? Well, thank you for that multi-part question. <laughs> um, consultants first. The, the, generally, there is an acceptance that all specialists need to provide a much more consultant-type service. A lot of confusion about the terms consultant-based, consultant-led, those sort of things. The phrase we want to use is consultant-present. So that means the EM consultant is present on the floor, uh, functioning in a multitasking sort of way. So that's, that's what we want to do with that. And, you know, given the numbers of patients that we see and the types of patients that we see, this, is, this has to be a case where there has to be much greater consultant presence. We can't leave the management of these patients to inexperienced junior clinicians in training. They're very good doctors, but it's a mismatch. And it's wrong for patient care. So what we can do is recognise that patient care is enhanced by consultant expansion, that training for junior doctors is enhanced by having more consultants. Um, you get better quality, better safety. Crucially, you know we're in this era of financial austerity, but we know that more consultants in emergency medicine save the system money. And one of our major objectives is to get that message across. And we save that by reducing unnecessary emissions, because beds are expensive, by 
reducing unsafe discharges, so we, we save litigation money, and by only ordering the investigations which aren't necessary. So we shift the, the, the approach to much more focused, and we know that consultants get those decisions right uh, more quickly. And so it's a win on, on all fronts, and you save the system money. So a relatively modest investment will have a great benefit for patient care. So that, that's... Uh, that's a, a battle. We, you know, we have in England, we see 20 million patients a year. We have 900 consultants. The ratio of consultants to patients um, for emergency medicine is the lowest. And in all other specialties in medicine, you're seen by a senior trained clinician. Why shouldn't that apply to emergency medicine, a well-recognized high-risk area? So we need to... Part of the problem has been an idea that somehow emergency medicine demand might go away. And so there's been a failure to invest in support. And, and latterly, there's been a widespread understanding of that it's not going to go away. It's just going to grow and grow and grow, so we need to have the workforce for it. So in terms of consultant numbers, that's, that's we're getting support. Centre for Workforce Intelligence, the joint group which I'm chairing with the DH is looking at... So there's a lot of activity going on. And so I'm optimistic and cautiously confident that we will make some good progress in that. But it's going to be tough. I'm not underestimating that at all. In terms of other doctors, consultants are part of the um, overall workforce, but we need to have more permanent staff. And so we need to invest in our um, staff grade associate specialists, specialty doctors, make sure that they are supported, invested, they're provided with CPD opportunities, they are encouraged to develop, they have SPA allocation in their job plan. Um, and they can be part of the senior team, of course. They're always happy at a central part. In terms of trainee numbers, the people who are responsible for trainee numbers are very nervous indeed about having too many trainees with too few consultant jobs. And so what we want to do is make sure that those numbers are balanced. And we're involved in some careful data work with the Centre for Workforce Intelligence and others who made the recommendations about training numbers. What was good this year was that emergency medicine did not lose any trainees, but other specialties did. And so that's allowed us all just to take a step back. So when we're looking at future workforce planning, we can make sure we get the training numbers right to fuel consultant expansion. Um, and junior doctors, well, it's, it's, it's the best training environment. So we want lots of junior doctors working alongside more senior clinicians. They get a great training, education experience, and, and it's just a system that will work. You mentioned briefly the new headquarters. At, yes. last, at last, we've got yes. it. What, what difference is it going to make in the life, daily life of the college? Well, it's, it's at the moment, we're, we're sitting in a room adjacent to the current college office, which is part of the third floor of the Royal College of Anesthetists, who've been fantastically generous hosts, but we have outgrown the space. This, we are functioning as a proper college, you know, and proper colleges need more space. You know, our, our training, our education, our exams, all of the huge range of activities that go on, we need more staff and we need more space. We are a rapidly maturing college, and it's about space. Also, we shouldn't underestimate how important it is to have our own building, because that really reinforces our identity. Um, and um, also, the, I'm, I'm pleased with the building because it's 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 a it's it's a quality building, um, and it looks the part. But it's not it's neither too small, it allows us to grow into it. But neither is it, if you like, extravagant or flashy, for want of a better word. Um, we wouldn't want to present the wrong image. And I, and I think that we have a, a building which will allow us to grow and expand into. But actually, when you approach it, when you visit it or work in it, you feel as though this is the right building for this college at this stage, and the plan is to stay in this building for at least the next 10 years. Then after that, we may be wanting to look at, at, at something larger. We will probably need something larger by that time, but that's over the horizon at the moment. Uh, 
So what are the current biggest problems faced by the college in general and the specialty in particular? I think the biggest problem is, is workforce um, and um, making sure that our message is about putting together a better, more permanent uh, senior-based workforce are, are acknowledged. And, and, and that's work that we, as I said earlier, we've made good progress on, but there's still a lot of work to do in that area. What um, everybody wants is emergency care delivered 24-7 by senior experienced trained clinicians. It seems obvious. Um, you know, we, the, the specialty has been under-supported and under-invested for 25 years, so we're behind the curve, and so we're catching up. And that means the sort of numbers that we need to generate... Um, are quite large, seem quite large, but as I say, it's fantastic value for money. But when we're looking at the ET workforce, we are looking, I think, at a different beast into the future, which will have more consultants, more senior doctors, whether they're staff graders, such as specialist doctors, more, uh, more senior doctors, more permanent doctors. We'll also be part of a team with emergency nurse practitioners, of course, more advanced nurse practitioners, physicians' assistants, um, other allied health professionals, and general practitioners. And there's quite a strong argument to say that the college should be responsible for training the entire emergency department's clinical team, rather than leave it up to different colleges or different organisations to do that. We should have the overview, working with those other groups, of course, so that we have the responsibility for training the ED, multi-professional, multidisciplinary team. And I think if we if we do that, part, consultant expansion is part of that, recognising also the fact that we are this team recognising the scope of practice of each of those other clinicians and where their boundaries lie. Because um, one of the key things about emergency medicine is that you need experience and training because clinical judgment, which is an important part of our role, there are no shortcuts to that. And so you have to make sure that the people making the decisions are making them properly. Emergency medicine is not a place for the inexperience, it's not a place for people dabbling, it's not a place where you can eyeball patients and get it right. You can't. So we need to make sure that we understand, and others understand, how important getting that right is. That's part is. Um, the uh, unsuccessful bid for Royal Appellation, mm. uh, just a few words about it. I know it's something you, uh, you've tried to achieve for the past few months. Yes. How do you feel about it? Well, it's, it's, um, it's disappointing, of course. It would be uh, wrong to deny that. Um, the more I reflect on it, and, and I have, the more I understand that it's, it's, it's not failure, it's deferred success. Um, and the, the reason we applied for Royal Appellation um, in early 2009, so that's quite a long time ago, but at that time we didn't have a building, we didn't have a chief executive, we thought that we were in a position to apply, um, and we were correct, but it's not surprising to me that the amount of infrastructure that's been put in place since our chief executive took our post, um, and the fact that we didn't have a building, must have been to our disadvantage. And so, although it's disappointing, it's understandable. Um, I am very confident, indeed, that when we reapply, and the process of that is that you need to now wait for another couple of years, uh, that when we reapply in a couple of years, with the work that Gordon would have done will be in our building, the college will have matured significantly, uh, and I'm very confident it will be successful at that time. So, so we'll be interested in that. Okay, another provocative question. Where do you see the specialty in 10, 15 years? Do you think it should become a universal triage system? or emergency medicine as an entity on its own? Uh, B, categorically, absolutely, <laughs> crucially. And we know that, and we know that everybody else knows. But it's an important point. It's about where we establish our identity in, in 
in what we do. You know, what's going to happen, I think, in the next 10 years is that um, as the health bill and various other changes affect the healthcare, whether it's in England or other, uh, whether Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland or Ireland, emergency care will remain a fixed requirement. It's not going to go away. The population is aging. The demands will be there. And, and so emergency medicine, I think its profile will continue to grow during the next decade as the demand continues to rise. That's the experience across the globe. It's going to happen in the UK and Ireland as well. So the importance of emergency medicine within whatever the future health service looks like is fundamental and will remain. And so I think uh, that our position will be strengthened within that. Um, I think there will be some challenges during that time, of course, and I think those include um, uh, how we work in an era where money is limited. They include uh, how do we reconcile the reconfiguration agenda. And, and the view of the college is that we are not opposed to reconfiguration, and in some places it makes eminent sense. But, and it's very big but, the local emergency medicine clinicians have to be directly involved with those discussions to understand precisely what the impact is in terms of that particular department which is being reconfigured, and of course the adjacent department. Um, but it, it, it makes sense in some places, but it's not a universal solution to emergency care. But the college has never resisted reconfiguration. We have been concerned where um, suggestions have been rolled out very quickly without proper evidence and without proper thought. So reconfiguration is highly likely to happen. It suits us, actually, it will work for emergency medicine because it will allow us to strengthen the larger departments, but for the departments which have been reconfigured, there will still be a need for emergency medicine presence because what the local public and politicians will want to provide is consistent care. It may not be for 24-7. It may not have the previous supporting specialties behind it. Therefore, the role of the emergency medicine contribution to those facilities will be more important than ever. So all of those uh, aspects of the future provision of emergency care support the fact that emergency medicine will be at the very core of that into the future. One of the key aspects of the development of the specialty is establishing our identity. And one of the ways of doing that is by completing patient care. And so what we're going to see in a, more and more, there's already some of it going on already, will be more senior clinician input early into patient care, focused investigations, early disposition decision, and the emergency providing, emergency plan providing care for the patients as required, after which they are then either admitted or sent to our clinical decision unit, or discharged home. It's that link between the emergency department and the clinical decision unit, and then ambulatory care, which will be one of the key axes for the future, and that will allow us to develop the subspecialty of observation medicine. And that is something which is going to be a major area of growth for the specialty during the next few years, and it will allow emergency medicine to reinforce its identity for other clinicians, commissioners, and those involved in developing services. So they can see we provide high-quality, safe, good-value-for-money care, and that's the way that we can do that. So we move on once and for all from this idea of being a triage service, which has never been the case and certainly isn't now or in the future. Uh, just a final question, um, slightly away from emergency medicine in general and the college in particular. You used to be one of the editors for the Journal of Accident Emergency Medicine. How do you see the EMJ? How do you see the progress, the evolution of the EMJ in the past five, ten years? I was editor of the Journal of Accident and Emergency Medicine, and I followed on from Tony Redmond, who was editor of Archives and Emergency Medicine. And so for emergency medicine publishing in the UK, we have quite a long history. And what has been fantastic to see how 
the journal has grown and matured as the specialty and as the college has. Um, around the world, there are a very small number of high-quality, prestigious scientific emergency medicine journals, and the EMJ is one of those. And that position has only been achieved by an incredible amount of hard work by the editorial team, ably supported by BMJ Publishing Group, who we've been with now for about 16 years, and that's been an immensely beneficial relationship for, for, for both parties, and also by the amount of uh, research and work which is submitted. So as, as an entity, the EMJ is hugely successful. It continues to grow and evolve and develop to be a primary vehicle for high-quality research and also providing educational opportunities for the readership. And by positioning itself as an international journal for emergency medicine, it strengthens its position within, as I say, the very few highest-quality emergency medicine journals. So we should, as a college and as a special, be very proud that we have the EMJ representing us in that arena. Thank you. On behalf of our listeners, uh, stay with Thank you again. Thank you very much indeed. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.